Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in an authentic, connected dialogue. I'm your host, Danielle Kingstrom. Thank you for joining me here on episode 13, where we're going to continue along with our final segment of our series with Cordell Winrow, part three. In this episode, we dive into the conversation on whether or not sex education in the public school system is beneficial to community. Cordell gives his opinion on whether or not drag queens should be instructing kindergartners on sexual identity and gender, and what community programs could contribute to those who would benefit from more inclusive and cooperative sex education and sex identification instruction meaning we include the parents. We share our ideas on community sex education programs. From there, we move on to the idea that we need to disconnect from our devices so that we can connect to the people that we live with and care about. After that, Cordell shares with me why there's power in a price tag and why profits for profit isn't such an oppositional idea as I once thought it was. Cordell shares with me what he learned from being a fitness coach and not cheapening his gift by charging those because those who pay for something value it more than those who receive something for free. Here's a portion from last week's episode to catch you up and to where the conversation went. And after that, enjoy part three with Cordell Winrow. Scripture even introduces alchemy but it does it never uses the word alchemy but as we understand the word alchemy it's a process of transformation creation and combination absolutely scripture speaks of alchemy in its purest form yeah and so like when we are transformed by the renewing of our mind or the word that comes out of our mouth begins to transform the atmosphere around us we hear this kind of talk spoken in a lot of charismatic circles we gotta change the atmosphere create an atmosphere you you hear those things right yeah that would be an alchemical process Mm. what i can say is when belief systems are at odds now that is a very interesting place to be say for instance the christ the judeo-christian background and the lgbtq background they clash right over a particular issue. And let's say that the issue has to do with what material should be taught in the educational sector about biology. Mm -hmm. Christians can't look at the LGBTQ community and be like, y'all are ignorant and are going to hell because you want to teach X, Y, and Z. But neither can Mm -hmm. LGBTQ proponents look at Christians and say, you're ignorant because we didn't choose to be this way and you just got to suck it up and deal with it because this is just how it's going to be. No, there actually needs to be a discussion of said things. There actually needs to be a fine line discussion of what is proper at what age group should we be espousing certain belief systems? Mm. Because here, here's the fact of the matter. I am a dad. I have two daughters. You know this. I don't think it is proper, and this is just from my standpoint, I don't think it is proper for a drag queen to go into reading time at a local library teaching three, four, five-year-olds how to twerk because of a book Mm. that they're reading. 
Mm. I don't think that is. Yeah, I don't want my little girl learning how to twerk just yet either. Yeah, I, Thank I, I you. Don't, I don't think that is a good thing. And can I just ask why Miley Cyrus couldn't be teaching the twerking over a drag queen? I don't know. Just okay. an idea. I here here's I, I'm gonna say, state this. I'm just saying. What makes it drag? I'm just saying. Like, or are, do I have other options? Are there any I other? Use- twerking professionals out there that I can select from at a more age appropriate time. Place. Right. But <laughs> I, I, I'm using the, the uh, drag queen because of the, yeah, I know what you're the gender about. confusion. Yeah. Now at three years old, four years old, five-year-olds gender confusion and gender identity, in my opinion, ought not be the focal point. They are children. Let them be kids. Let them play. Let them do what they do. Yeah, I mean, my son told me for four months he was yeah. a cat. They grow out of it. Yeah, they yeah, change they, their minds. Ch- yeah, I don't. Mind. Yeah, they don't. They they're barely cognitively aware of who they are at three and four right. years old. But and or at yeah, twenty, their frontal lobe hasn't really developed <laughs> at twenty. It still we still got to get to twenty five. But exactly, but I'll, I'll go so far to say is that age appropriate. Uh, personally. And this just goes back to being a Christian, not necessarily being a father. Personally, I don't think anyone should teach my daughter how to twerk, period. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. number one, most of the time when people are teaching people how to twerk, it's for the objectification of the perp- person who's learning how to twerk. Mm. It's not to teach them a awesome dance skill. No, because the root of it is when you're twerking, you're being objectified by people. Yeah, you're shaking your butt like, around. I don't think objectification is healthy at any point in time in life. Unless you're a consenting adult and you want to objectify yourself in a nightclub. And you're an adult at that point. That's my you're, caveat. You're an adult. Yeah, like, that's what I mean. A consenting if, adult. Yeah. Children. If you're mm-mm. a consenting adult, you do what you do. You have the choice. But if you're not a consenting adult, and by consenting adult, I say, if you're not 18, you don't have the status as an adult. You have to be 18 to have the status of an adult. So until that point, no, that's just yeah. No, I hear you on that. No. And beyond that, and this is just me from my perspective and what I would want to take place first is if you're willing to celebrate and instruct on twerking, I would like to know when we're going to talk about, you know, bigger topics like recognizing that children at very young ages become aware of what arousal is. And if you're not willing to take take it to that route first and have a child understand themselves and what they're feeling and experiencing, you got no business instructing them and teaching them on how to do things with certain body parts that they still have not figured out and registered what they fully encompass and what those body parts can do. You're like, oh, this is fun. Let's teach children to shake butts while also being trans and drag inclusive. But you're not really teaching them anything. You're trying to find an entertaining way to appeal to some kind of, I don't even know what, but it's not doing anything. And, and, and really all it's doing is it's pissing people off because we're like, how far does this education expansion go? What are my rights as a parent? And what do I get to restrict my children from learning? And, and what are you telling me I, I don't have any control over? Because when you start taking people's, you're taking people's right away to influence their own families and children and it's state run or it's federally run. And it's like, no, some of this stuff 
needs to be taught at home, needs to be discussed at home in a serious level, not in an entertaining level so you can freaking grab headlines. I mean, if I were to go so far and add to that, I would say I would leave most of the sex education at home personally. Yeah, I would too, because they're not even, they they suck at it. They suck at it. What they're doing is, what they have been doing isn't doing a damn bit of good. So just I mean, take it just back take, out. Like, as much as you've wanted the Bible out of schools, let's just take sex out of school, period. Like, mm-hmm. if you want to learn about sex, go do your own damn research or have your parents talk to you about sex. But the fact of the matter... Yeah, and parents stop being pussies about talking to your children about sex. Sex is a natural part of life, but we need to be able to have those conversations with our own children. I, for one, don't think it's any teacher's business or responsibility to talk to my kid about safe sex practices or the STDs that they can catch by having sex or the fact that sex is an amazing thing. I think that needs to come from me as a father and my wife as a mother to say, hey, here's some guidelines. If you choose to do this and how, who's to say that, you know, there is a right and wrong way to have that conversation. Some people will have a better conversation than others. It's fine. But at least allow them the dignity to have that conversation. Well, yeah, and the school setting is just is hardly a functional infrastructure to do it because the first thing I always think about too when they introduce sex education to children is, do you even know if one of those children that you're instructing has experienced sexual abuse or sexual trauma? And then do you have any idea what your instruction could do to that? I mean, that alone, I'm like right there, we don't know each individual child's background. So introducing a topic like that as broadly as they do with with such limited parameters of comfort and understanding can perpetuate trauma in some children. And then in some sense, if there's other types of unhealthy uh, developmental behaviors that are present in the children, or maybe they're not present and you don't know about it, what you're teaching them could perpetuate for them a way to exploit sexuality. And then what do you, how, who's responsible? And, and what kind of consequences are you accounting for? And the answer is none. So that means, like, get back to the basics. You know, reading, writing, arithmetic, leave the sex outside of the home. And if you really feel like you need some kind of community program, then get with experts, get with professionals, get with psychologists, and make sure that you are coming to these children individually on a needs basis and talking to them and promoting and and lecturing and instructing or what have you, but by including those parents and including the community and not taking them out of the equation. I, I think that that is vastly probably the approach that I would take. And I, I use vastly wrong, but don't, don't hurt me. (laughs) I think that's the approach that I would take as well. Like community sponsored events where you're getting multiple perspectives, like within a lecture. Yeah. It's like, it's a thing where parents and kids can come to together. Hey, you want to know more about sexuality? You want to know more about things? Have an open uh, thing where you're taking faith-based sex, you're taking LGBTQ sex, like you're, you're hitting all these things so you can get a more broad understanding. And then you have talking points to go back 
to home and talk to your own kids about, but leave it yes. like, leave it at home. Don't take it to the school because when you take it to school, we just have bigger issues. Sex is yep. a very touchy subject, especially when, like you said, we talk about sexual abuse in children. Trauma-informed mm-hmm. care is what's needed when we have those conversations because you have to be sensitive to what a child is going through. And the school mm-hmm. is much like a factory. It's broad strokes. It doesn't care about the individual. It cares about the collective. And as long as the collective is okay, the individuals can go underserved. And so when yeah. you get into a big form like that, you, you make it a point to say, hey, we're going to use trauma-informed language when we talk about these things. We're not going to be super explicit, but we're going to give a general overview. Have this be a community event. Because when it, it's a community event, yeah, you're going to get a whole bunch of different perspectives, but you can do a Q&A. You can have you know small group conversations, but that would be, it would be much more involved and people don't want yeah. to be involved. And I think that... I think that's where a lot of the pushback comes from. I I would say more so on the conservative side, too, is that when you remove the parent, you're removing a fundamental aspect of the family ideals and that this is something that should be discussed as a family in in a comfortable environment. And when you're taking the parent out of the equation, it feels like you're telling them that, you know, whatever they have to say just isn't as valuable as what the school program can offer. Absolutely. And that goes into the idea that the family unit isn't as important as the school system, which, in my opinion, the the deterioration of the family unit is actually what's causing the exacerbation of these issues that we're seeing in kids. The deterioration of families being able to sit together and eat together, to sit together and talk Mm -hmm. together, the introduction of cell phones at the dinner table, disconnecting mm, from each other yeah. when we're having meals, disconnecting mm-hmm. from each other, being planted into Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever you, whatever you're planted on, we're no longer connecting. And without that connection, we can't actually have deep levels of conversation or communication. Or understanding. Exactly. And without those things, we're seeing children get left behind, no pun intended. Um, but children mm-hmm. are getting left behind. They no longer have an outlet to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation with the people that are most important to them. They have to have those conversations with people that they only see, you know, maybe four or five hours during the day. And then they go home and there's no, and then they have conversations with their peers who really don't care. They're just, you know, throwing their own ideas out there. And it's like, who can I actually have a sound conversation, safe conversation where I can actually begin to voice my thoughts and my ideas and try to get some understanding and work through some things that I'm struggling with. Um, If I need to work through some issues with my sexuality, like I want to do that with someone who actually cares about me rather than somebody who doesn't care and is just throwing out these ideas at me. Yeah. Or throwing together this curriculum that they themselves have not even been educated on, but are ordered to dole out. Yeah. And one one thing I would just add, though, is, and I just recently read, I've been reading a lot of Freud and Alfred Kinsey just because I'm, you know, I, I write about sexuality and the erotic. And one thing that I found really interesting that I hadn't really considered, it shouldn't have been a shock to me, but it was, is that children actually 
when they're beginning to learn about their sexuality, well, number one, they're learning about it far, far younger than than schools are are jumping in to start teaching them at. And I'm not suggesting they should start introducing it earlier, but I mean, children need to be curious and discover for themselves the things that they need to discover about themselves. But what's interesting is that even within safe and comfortable and open and honest environments at home, children are still more inclined to talk to each other about their discoveries and their curiosities and their questions. And knowing that makes me feel like just as a parent, we all need to be more prepared for that, making sure that we're giving our children the right information because they are going to go and take that information we share with them and share it with their friends. And so as parents, we need to be more careful about making sure that when we are talking to our children about sexuality, we're engaging them so openly and authentically that they would then feel comfortable enough with the information we've shared to turn around and share it with their friends. That way we can kind of ensure a little bit more that our children are not repeating, you know, crap ideas and crap logic and and misinformed ideas or or shaming techniques or whatever it is. That if we're giving them the proper information and we're all doing this as a community as parents joining together recognizing we have to do that, we can then feel comfortable knowing that our children when they are talking to each other about this, are doing it in a healthy way and in an informed way. And they're not just like, "Uh, did you see this porn site? Or did, you know, for me, it was uh, boys would bring playboys and penthouses on the bus. And that was our sex education for the day. Instead of that, we're giving them better information for them to share. And so I would just like to say, parents, we should do that. I think that is a great idea. I think the pushback that you might receive is that that actually takes time. Um, yeah, it does. That means we have to put our cell phones down and we have to stop over um, filling our schedules and our daily activities and, and our extracurricular activities and, and make time to just be with each yeah, other. And within our culture today, most people don't understand the value of slowing down. No, they think there's more value in in making sure that you're freaking busy every hour of the day that you're awake. I have so many friends who do that. Oh my God, my day was so busy. I had this and this and this. And I'm like, why do you do that? Like, why do you do that mm-hmm. to yourself? And oh, I was just going to add one other thing. It's like, it's a rarity. You mentioned it earlier, like sitting down to dinner, but now people are pulling out their phones. We have a very strict rule in my house. You pull a phone out during my meal, I'm going to freak out on you. Like, I don't let anybody do it. My husband's phone rings all the time. He's always busy. He's always on call. But if we are sitting down having a meal, I don't care who's calling. I don't care. We do not use our phones during dinner. That is the one. There's something about it. I did it as a kid, and it's something I've always insisted on as a practice here. We sit down, especially for dinner and sometimes for lunch, but we always sit down. That's how we connect. We fill our bellies. We provide ourselves with nourishment, and then we provide ourselves with verbal nourishment. We talk, we connect, we relate, and not a, people aren't doing that anymore. They're filling their their days up, and when they do have downtime, they're looking at their screens and not at each what other. What I find funny is that the greatest conversations that I've had with people oftentimes are over beer or over food. Yeah, those me are too, the me most too. meaningful conversations because your guard is let down. You don't have your phones in front of you most of the time. You're able to connect. You're able to actually have deep, meaningful conversations and actually get to know the person in front of you. And it's not necessarily, it doesn't 
you usually start super deep. It's just the fact that when you got good food in front of you and good company, you just automatically just want to chill out and actually have a conversation. Yeah. It's that's the normal feeling. I, I I get it. Like we're at home, but we always have something going on, and it's almost as if you have to carve that time to say dinner time is at six o'clock tonight. Get your ass home, put your stuff up. Mm-hmm. We're going to sit down and we're having an hour space for dinner. Homework can wait. Bath time can wait. Six o'clock is our pre-scheduled mm-hmm. event every night. Dinner together. Mm-hmm. It's like you have to plan it that way. That dinner becomes your next job almost. And I hate saying that. Yeah. But well, but it is though. I mean, who? I wish someone would have told me when I was a kid that the one most difficult decision I was going to have to make every day for the rest of my life was what the hell I'm making <laughs> for dinner. No joke. No wonder my mom was always mad every time it was dinner time. It's like, now I got to get all creative again and find some for these fuckers to eat where they're not going to get all pissed off and right? picky about it. Yeah, I, I relate to that. Or, or even if they got picky, you're eating it or you're going to bed hungry. So True. Yeah, well, it's either that or you can go yeah, hungry. So. You can go hungry. Mm-hmm. I don't care. My, my parents yeah. did not care. You don't want to eat? That's fine. No, I used to have to sit there three hours later still looking at my freaking hamburger helper all cold and and like, you're going to eat that or you're going to just sit there. Okay. Yeah. And gagging down (laughs) everybody. And so like, you know, the dinner table is like that should be that safe zone. But I will, I will go on to say that even though it should be that safe zone, many people don't know how to have that safe zone. Mm. Like, I grew up in a household where we were always busy, yes, but when we did sit down, we sat down together. But it wasn't like every night. Yeah. It was maybe two times, three times at most during the week. And so we have to understand that a lot of people haven't grown up with that modeled. If anything, if mm. anything, I would say in school, we should model that. Reading, writing, arithmetic and communication, how to have great relationships. Actually teach Mm. kids how to be successful in relationships because if they're successful in relationships, they're going to be successful for the rest of their lives. Like there should be a class that is taught or a time where it's taught, all right, we're in our groups. We're not doing math. We're not doing reading. We're not doing writing. We're actually going to sit down and enjoy each other's company. Mm. Because when you enjoy in a mm-hmm. person's company, you're actually listening, actively listening. Yeah. We're teaching yes. kids how to actively listen, how to actively think critically based on what we're hearing them say. Hey, we're going to be you know, in our groups of five. We're going to have this one topic, and we're just going to have a casual conversation about this. And it's easier to do when they're in elementary school to have teach them how to do this because once you get to high school, you know what happens? They get all cool and don't want to talk to each other <laughs> or they want to stay within their cliques. But if you, yep. I'm not, I'm not going to partner up with that person. Are right. you kidding me? Do you know what that did to exactly. my reputation? But if we taught them how to do that at a young age where they weren't biased or they didn't have as much of the bias built in, it makes it easier to foster that down the road. And so I think, that the, the current way of doing things in our school system, the factory thing, has to be done away with. We, 
I know there has got to be some empirical evidence that shows that if we teach kids how to read, how to write, how to do arithmetic, and also how to have conversations and learn to listen, they will be more successful in life. If we teach them how to think critically, they'll be more successful in life. But I don't think that the powers that be, whoever the powers that be, be, they don't want to see that happen. Because when you have a society that thinks critically, when you have a society that knows how to communicate, that means that the society as a whole will know how to come together. Yeah. And then that society as a whole won't be dependent on the government to solve all of and their problems. And there won't be as much division. And when there's no division... There's nothing to propagandize. There's nothing to campaign on. Thus, we come to the crux of our issue. Because if we taught it at a young age for several generations, what would happen when those kids become adults? They'd end the Fed and shut the government down and we'd have Probably. anarchy? Pipe dream. But, but that, yeah. that's why I'm saying. We would bring the kingdom to earth if we did that. And then, whoa. Right? Yeah, but I don't think people really want to bring the kingdom to earth because they want to just, you know, be selfish tyrants and get whatever they want. Uh, yeah. I believe that you are right in that. Because who wants to give up power and authority? Mm. Like when you... Well, a Christian, a Christian ought, ought, to. ought to, but even Christians have fallen prey to the lie that if I'm powerful, then I can do more good. But the lie is that in order to get powerful, you have to do certain things that compromise your integrity and your morals. Like charge people for you to yeah. prophecy? Charge people yeah, for healing. I know healing. people like that. Profit for profit. Right? Now, my one caveat to that is that the only time one should ever charge anything for anything is if God says, hey, I need you to do this and be obedient here. And that's the only time because I'm, I'm very keen on this idea that obedience is one of the things that opens the door to prosperity and to blessing. And sometimes for like, I know for me, if God ever told me to charge somebody for something, I would have the hardest time doing that. That would be a that. stretch of obedience for me. Mm. That is a stretch. If God says, hey, I need you to charge this much for this service that you provide, oh, I don't know if I could do that because I'm so used to just giving it away for free. But then when God comes back to you and says, hey, you're not valuing the thing that I put inside of you and I need you to see that this thing is valuable. Crap. Yeah. Hmm. That's there are interesting. places, in my, in my opinion, where charging something is actually a bigger sacrifice than not charging. And it's for you to grow and value the thing that you have. So sometimes the obedience can look like something you have to exactly. suffer through. Interesting. Yeah, that would be hard for me. That's my struggle right now. It really is. It's like I'm seeing a lot of people that I used to be associated with, that I used to collaborate with, who are creating courses based on the books that they've published. And I even said to Corey the other day, I said, if I ever become this, please smack me. Like if I ever become so caught up in myself that I have to convince people that they need to sign up for six-week or 12-week courses that cost hundreds of dollars to continue getting 
further wisdom that I have to offer that couldn't be gotten out of the books that I've already published, you know, stop me. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go to that point. But at the same time, as much as I hate to admit it, you got to make a living somehow. But it's just like, it's hard for me to reconcile that. It takes me back to my MLM days of trying to get people to buy into whatever product I was collaborated with as a way to make money while still being a stay-at-home mom and feeling guilty. Like, I'm a horrible salesperson. You want to tell me I don't want to buy it? And I'm like, okay, mm, I understand. Like, I, I've been through hard times. I get that. But then at the same time, it's like, girl, I'm, I'm trying to eat too. So how do I draw that line where I'm not taking advantage, but I'm being appreciative of those who are willing to support my work. And so that's a fine line for me that I'm I'm going to have to wrestle res- with as a writer because as a writer, I don't expect to make money. As a podcaster, I do this for free. And so it's just something that I have to wrestle with and so figure out where I so land I'm on gonna it. So I'm going to throw a perspective changer. Okay. The reason I'm going to throw this one is because it's something that has actually transformed my mentality when it comes to offering services. So the biggest thing that I would say is if I could do anything, I would absolutely do it for free because I love people. But here's, there was a concept that was shown to me that I didn't realize until it was shown to me that I was actually doing a disservice to people by not valuing the service that I offered. How's that? What do you value the most? Something that you have paid for or something that you got for free? What will you take um, care of most? Something that cost you $2,000 or something that cost you $2? Oh, probably something that cost me $2,000. Um, because I can't replace it as easily. Really? Yeah. So think about that. Mm. So I'm going to go into the personal training aspect. Okay. So as a personal trainer, I would give personal training away for free if I could. And then one one of my fitness managers looked at me and was like, you know, it's great that you have the heart to give this to people, but people don't value something that they don't have to pay for. Damn. The higher the price that they have to pay for something, the more they are inclined to stick with what it is that they are doing. By you not being willing to charge them the price that you deserve, because as a trainer, you have $80,000 worth of knowledge under your belt, plus certifications, plus 10 years of experience. If you give that to them for free, they will not value it. They will not take it to heart and they will shit on it every single time. But if you, because you have the heart for people will actually charge them what this stuff is worth, they will take it seriously and they will see the results that they want to see because now they've had to pay a price for it. Think about, I'm going to take this into the Judeo Christian world because I just had an awesome like epiphany just a second ago. Ooh, I like epiphanies. If God paid Jesus for all of us, how much do you think he's really going to invest in every single person that he has the ability to come into relationship with? Mm. His down payment 
was his only son. Do you really think that he's not going to be invested in the people that he put that down payment for? Damn, Cordell. You as a writer have so much to give to people, but people will not take it seriously unless there's a price that they have to pay for it. The more somebody has to pay for something, the more seriously that they will be involved with that thing because it's costing them something. The cheaper something is, the less important it becomes to a person. But the more expensive something is that they're invested into, the more they will be very careful to do right by this thing. Because nobody wants to waste money on something that is not working. But if what you're doing causes transformation, a person will continue to gravitate and to buy that thing because it is bringing the transformation that they want to see. I have three particular clients that are in my mind right now that have been doing personal training with me for eight months. I'm going to give you the price tag for eight months of personal training with me, okay? Okay. 12 sessions. Do you want to know the grand total? Yes. $7,112 over eight months. Do you know how often they missed a session? They may have missed two sessions in eight months. Wow. Do you want to know the amount of progress that they made? The husband had never been able to do a push-up in his life. By the time we were done, he was able to do sets of 20 push-ups in a row, pull-ups that he had never been able to do, and his cardiovascular system, he's able to play games of racquetball like 45 minutes at a time, full out, never been able to do that. His wife Mm. had range of motion issues in her shoulder, wasn't able to get her shoulder or her arm over her head because of the impingement. She went from not being able to move her arm over her head to now being able to do the sets of shoulder press with 10 to 15 pound weights, no problem. That's eight months of work, but it costs them something. I have another client, I think over her eight months, spent shy of eight grand for her personal training. She went from being Mm -hmm. not confident in her ability to lift weights and feeling like she was going to be judged by people to eight months later, wanting to be in a space where people could see her, where she could get to a squat rack, where she could, you know, squat heavy weight. And by heavy weight, I'm like, she was squatting 125 pounds easily. She was deadlifting 150 some odd pounds easily. She was doing movements that she had never done before. She was able to keep up with her teen daughter who was running track. But most importantly, she had a confidence boost and a transformation in her confidence. She paid $8,000, just shy of $8,000 in eight months to see that transformation happen. You're making a very valid point. People who see transformation happening in their lives will pay what needs to be paid because they'll begin to value what it is that is happening in their lives. But we do a disservice by cheapening what it is that we offer. We do them a disservice and we actually shortchange their transformation process because we're not valuing what it is that we bring to the table. Yep. That really, uh, that really kind of provides a very shifting perspective for me to consider. And I mean, like I said, going into the Judeo-Christian realm of things, like God's down payment for the world was his son. 
So do you think he's not going to be invested in every life that is here? Mm-hmm. Like he paid mm-hmm. the highest price possible for the opportunity to be in relationship with every single one of us. Yeah, he takes that very seriously because of the cost. People will take seriously the things that cost them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well. And I have much to reflect on in regard to that now. Maybe I won't. I'm going to wrestle with it some more, <laughs> but hopefully I can come to some kind of conclusion for myself. And that's not to say that I've got this thing perfect, Danielle, because I, I, I don't. I still have spaces where I undervalue the, the things that I bring to the table because I honestly don't see the value sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, doubt right? and faith, right? They go they hand do. in hand. But that being said, yeah. the fact that we can wrestle with that now, here's the greatest part about everything that I've just shared is it's not something that you'll ever be able to forget. That's true. So like, you don't have to worry about this going away at some point. It's, Remember, uh, beginning in the conversation, our orthopraxy can sometimes transform our theology. Yeah, yeah. What you heard wasn't a theology. What you heard was my orthopraxy. Interesting. Like, it took you into ex- an experience, a revelatory experience, basically, mm-hmm. to where you were like, mm-hmm. oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, shit, you're dropping some knowledge, and you, too. you just have to sit back because that hits you in a different way. If I didn't have the practical experience behind this, I could have said the same thing and it just would not have had the impact that it just had. Yeah. But it's because I'm actually living this thing out and I actually have the experience with this to tell you when you value something and you charge for it, people will value that thing as well because it's going to cost them. It, yeah. It's a, I, I just don't know how to explain how different it is to get that in head knowledge versus to get that as an experiential revelation for you. And then to have it reverberate exactly. the way it does. Because yeah. I'm pretty sure in, in that conversation, like, and this is just me making a small assumption, but I'm pretty sure that you saw various moments in your own personal life where that reverberates very strongly. Well, yeah. I mean, especially the part about it cheapening me. I mean, yeah, if we don't value somebody because we don't have a vested interest in them, it's so easy for us to dismiss them and discredit them and turn on them and just ignore them. I mean, I found that to be true in my own life. And now I have also been burned by financially supporting people whom I was invested in, who I did feel inspired me. But then as soon as I you know, dared to contradict something they said, I was canceled. I was nothing. I was no longer valuable to them because, I don't know, because I was making them have to, I was challenging them in some way. And so maybe that part of me understands why other people don't invest in me Mm. financially. Or maybe why I feel like I shouldn't ask people to do that because I have invested money in people and they've still they've turned on me or they've betrayed me or they've just completely shut me out. And I'm like, really? Like I've, I've been your cheerleader. I've been supporting you. I've, I've been promoting you. And then because I challenged you, that's it, you know? And so maybe that's where my doubt comes from because I know how I can be burned by helping someone else so that I can understand why other people are like, 
I'm not going to pay you. You haven't really done anything to prove to me that you're worthy of money yet. And even if you do, what happens if I challenge you? You know, you know what I mean? So I, I have that. I don't know. Is it trauma? I don't know what it is. I have that in the back of my mind, though. So I'm I'm wondering just as I'm still processing, if that has something to do with Um, it. I would go so far to say that I I can't talk to your experience because it is your experience, but I can say firsthand that I've experienced something very similar. And for me, Mm -hmm. it, it really does come down to the compare and contrast. If I compare and contrast myself to somebody else and what they've done, for whatever reason, I take what they've done and I've put it on, I put it on myself, which Mm. that projection and that ownership doesn't necessarily reflect who I am. Um, the fact of the matter, in my opinion, is what crappy things somebody else does. We can't project that on other people. That's like projecting crappy things that somebody does in a relationship onto the next relationship that you have. That's illegal yeah. to do because that just cheapens the overall relationship, right? Yeah. I can't be mad at Kirsten for something that Kirsten never did. I can't hold her yeah. accountable for something an ex did five years ago. That's unfair to Kirsten. And that actually goes to damage our relationship. It goes so far in the regard of damaging our relationship that we actually don't get to form bonds in the spaces that we need to form bonds because I keep her out. Mm. Therefore she doesn't get to have the fullest experience of who I am because I'm holding her at arm's length. And when it comes to our own practices, you know, and being hurt by things that other people have done and then putting that on ourselves I can only tell you so often that I've done that to myself Mm -hmm. and it's actually the mindset that ruined my personal training experience as a whole until recently. I can say with certain clarity that it was pushing past those mindsets to begin to see myself that really begin to change my understanding of what it is that it brings to the table and to really touch on an issue and a topic that you just brought up. I believe wholeheartedly that when we are conversing about the things that we bring to the table, we have to be very mindful that the things that we bring to the table are subject to change and they grow. And the thing that is different about what you bring to the table versus the experiences that you've had is that the people that you have supported in the past, their fundamental nature has been that of obstinacy to be very set in their ways, even though they guise it as being, you know, open-minded. Whereas you differ in that aspect in that you've consistently been open-minded you've consistently been growing you have consistently been doing studying you have consistently made yourself available to grow and expand your capacity the thing that changed my practice of personal training was my willingness to grow and learn from people that were different from me 
that had different expertise than me. I made it a point to study everything that they were doing as trainers. I learned how to make what they were doing my own, have my own twist to it, and become a better trainer because of it. Mm. You do the same thing with your own writing, with your research, with the way that you talk to people. You are so open to growing that it sets you apart from the people that you have supported in the past who weren't open to growing. They were open to being set in their ways and doing things the way that they wanted to. But that's what you bring to the table is that when somebody comes to criticize you, you don't shy away from the criticism. You actually own it and begin to work through it. That's what makes you so valuable to the community at large. That's what made me so valuable to my community at large is that if I didn't know something, I was willing to find out. I was willing to learn. I was willing to grow. Yeah. Well, yeah, that and I'm short, so I'm always willing to grow. Short people have to grow, right? (laughs) (laughs) And so you got to think about that. Because of your willingness to grow, you're never in the same spot. No, and I'm willing to say I don't know. You have and I'm willing to say I was And that's wrong. what gives you more credibility. Yeah, damn it. That's what gives me more credibility, Your credibility people. doesn't come from you knowing everything. It comes from the fact that you're willing to research. It's coming from the fact that you're willing to say that you're wrong. It's coming from the fact that you're willing to say, I'm willing to change. Yeah. Credibility is not built up because yeah. you know everything. It's because you stay authentic no. to the person of who you are. Well, thank you for... For noticing that about me, Cordell, I appreciate that. You're making me blow. <laughs> You're welcome, Danielle. But I also say that <laughs> for you, even your own writing and in your own practice as a podcaster, as a writer, as someone who's espousing to bring knowledge and bring a, a certain level of um, clarity to our culture, that is a defining trademark of somebody who is authentic. Yeah, I'm willing to grow. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to evolve my way of mm-hmm. thinking. I'm not willing to stay stagnant. I'm not willing to say that I have everything figured out. I'm open to the fact that I just had my mind blown by this black guy talking about Jesus and God's sacrificing Jesus. That came out horribly, but God's down payment being Jesus and how much he values humanity as a result of what he had to pay. That and black men always blow my mind. So, I mean, you got Uh, that going for you. I know. I love the black men. My husband knows that too. Sorry, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta be careful. Gotta be careful. Don't worry, Corey. I I won't won't, won't swoop. (laughs) I am content with my vanilla man now, okay? I am content with my (laughs) vanilla woman. Although she's still, yeah, there you go. See, see, back in the day, I was all about you know other flavors, but uh, but guess I'm a plain Jane. I, I digress <laughs> to say that you know it is that authentic factor. The AF, I love that the authentic factor. Yes, the, the AF. AF, the authentic factor that allows us to. I wouldn't say put a price tag on it but call people out to value the thing that they say that they want. So for me, if people want to get fit, they got to be willing to pay the price tag to get fit. Because if you're not willing Mm -hmm. to pay the price tag, you're not willing to eat well, you're not willing to actually get into the gym, you're not willing to do the things that are necessary for you to lose those 20 pounds. If you don't have the motivation, if you don't have the inspiration, pay the damn price tag 
to get that accountability because it's that accountability that's going to push you in the direction. And if the price tag is high enough, you are going to jump when that person says jump. You're going to eat what that person says to eat. You're going to do what that person says to do because you're counting on them to get you from point A to point B. Yeah. (laughs) That's the power of a price tag, Danielle. The power of a price tag. It really is the power of the price tag. And I I don't like saying it that way, but it, it is the facts of the matter. Something that costs you is going to cause you to focus. And the more it costs you, the more you're going to focus. In fact, I'll do a math problem. Your focus Ooh, like is math. directly proportional to the amount of price that you have paid for the thing that you're focusing on. Mm. That's true. And even if you're not like physically paying money, like whatever you tangibly invest yourself in, you're going to focus and more if on. Your investment is small, your focus is going to be small. But if your investment mm-hmm. is huge, mm-hmm. your focus is going to be very intent. Yes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I believe that. I took a I took a nonviolent communication course. It wasn't cheap, and I did not miss one class. And I was very invested and I learned a lot from it. And I was like, looking back, it was expensive, but oh my God, I got so much out of it. And it did transform me. And I feel that way with books. I mean, that's why I buy books. And I am especially appreciative of the books that I buy that do transform me. Like they literally transform me. So you've made quite a case, Cordell. For me to rethink this whole... uh, The caveat for people within the Judeo-Christian realm is ask God what the price tag ought to be. Mm. It'd be (laughs) $9.99. Five easy installments of $9.99. God, send me the price tag in my dreams tonight, please. Amen. For real. No, yeah, that's good, though. It's not up to us, and it's up to simply being obedient to what we've been given. It's not our, wherever the ball lands, it's not up to us. We're just simply being obedient to it. Like that obedience, like factor, again, I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience. When I got okay with putting the price tag on the service that I offered, it was like doors just opened up for me. Clients just came flocking in, you know? It was only because I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to stop fighting and I'm going to value this thing and I'm going to put a price tag on it. And that's just what it's going to be. I don't want to stop people from being healthy. I don't want to stop people from being blessed. I don't want to block people from being able to grow. And if me not putting a price tag on something is actually doing all of those things and it's blocking people from all those things, I need to get out the damn way. And I need to get over myself mm. and I need to just do this thing so that people can actually be helped. Wow. I like that. And I'm thinking about ludicrous right now. Move. Get out the way. <laughs> get out the way. Get out the way. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm following. I'm tracking. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm <laughs> good, good. Smelling yep, what I'm, I'm smelling cooking. What the rock is cooking. All right. All right. Here's where we're at. We're at three and a half hours, my dear uh, friend. This was an absolute blast to record with you because it's almost like it's it almost was. like you got two different podcasts that you can 
Man, I might even get three out of this I might, if I'm I mean, clever. You might get three podcasts. I can stretch you out for three weeks and have people just fall in I love mean, with I'd you. I'd love if they'd fall in love with me, honestly. Like I actually did my Instagram live yeah. and I talked I talked about, you yeah. know, um being a part part of your podcast and doing doing this podcast. I'm like she's one of my favorite people to do podcasts with because our conversations go from Left, Aww. right, up, down, sideways, horizontal, and vertical. Right, and we just jump into them. Like I remember when we were just doing like what well, we were just doing like Facebook like yeah. video chat, and you'd be like, "All right, here's where I'm at. This is what pissed me off today, or this is what I'm talking about." And we, we would just dive in. It wasn't even like, "Hey, how you been? What's going on?" You were like, "All right, Danielle, <laughs> listen. People are assholes, and I'm gonna tell you why." And we just like jumped in. It yeah. was so cool. I didn't catch your – I saw you posted today. I saw you went live, but I didn't watch it yet. I watched the one you put up, I think, yesterday I, or the I other day. I don't I don't remember if I went live today. No, I didn't. It was yesterday. Was it? Okay, but then you did one like a day or two before. It was you like instructing oh, people. Oh, that live video was actually one of the classes that I teach. Yeah, I, well, I watched fun. that. Did you like it? Yeah. Yeah, it looked very intense. I was like getting tired watching y'all. I mean, I just do yoga and that freaking drains yeah, me. No, I love I love coaching like that because it's a it's I'm no longer doing personal training right now. I mean, if somebody really asks me and mm-hmm. wants me to do it, I might. But I'm doing group training, which is allowing me to communicate with more I'm looking at it as public speaking. Ooh. That's good. I get a room full of 25 people at max and I get to work on my public speaking and my queuing and all that kind of stuff. So like, that's what I'm looking at this position as. Awesome. So, Man, I know I like need to, I, I fear public speaking. Maybe that's why I haven't put myself out there as hard as I could. I honestly, I fear when I used to have to just talk in front of like eight people during a business meeting, my voice would crack and I would get so nervous that I would feel like I was going to start crying. Like everybody is looking at me and it's really hot in here. And oh my God, why do I feel emotional all of a sudden? And so it was really hard. And I mean, podcasting, when I first started, when I first did like my first interview, I was like, oh my God, do I sound like I'm just like shaking because I'm so nervous. But um, with you, it's really comfortable. But public speaking scares me. So what you're doing is a really smart tactic, but you probably don't fear it. Honestly, I I did fear it quite a bit. Did you? I did not think I had what it took to be a um, small group coach. It wasn't until I actually started small group coaching that I realized I have a knack for being a small group coach. Yeah. And so a lot of things, oh my gosh. Okay. I actually had, uh, I, you know, I kick, do kickboxing instruction. Yes, I One do know that. Yes. People that came into kickbox, I was in the process of showing them how to do a particular combo. First thing out of her mouth was, I can't do this. It's too early for this. I can't do this. Mm-hmm legitimately walked her through the combo one time and she had it down perfect. And so my challenge to you, Danielle, would be don't necessarily say that you can't do something. You may not be good at it right now, but you never know if you might actually have a severe knack for it. Yeah. I mean, I probably do. I'm good at everything I do. So no, (laughs) Um, no, I know I need to put myself out there. I totally do. I think about it. I like, you know, I fantasize like, what would it be like if I were to give a public speaking? What would I talk about? 
well, what kind of notes would I have, you know? And then I think, but then I'm like, I always end up seeing myself freeze up there and forgetting what I was going to say. And I don't know. So I'm going to have to figure out. And even if I do freeze and like, who the hell hasn't? Like everybody at some point or another suddenly is just like, I have no idea what I was going to say. And suddenly I'm very nervous. And okay, so break the ice and be honest. That's what I'm good at. I'm honest. Like, I'll tell you, I'm feeling very uncomfortable right now. I'm just letting you know, it feels like 500 degrees in here. So, I mean, again, it's you being authentic. Yeah. The authentic yeah, factor. You've got to be authentic to who you are. You, you find, man, you're reminding me of things that I've shared with personal trainers before I left the company that I was at. And one of the things that I told one of the new personal trainers was, you don't have to try to compete with any of the other personal trainers that are here. You've got to find your voice because your voice is going to resonate mm-hmm. with people. And when you find it, your tribe's going to come to you. Yeah. So you've got to find confidence in how you do things. When you find that confidence, mm. it's going to show. So there's no podcaster that you have to be like. You just have to be you. You know, I'm afraid of making some of these live videos because I keep telling myself I'm long winded. You? I mean, when it comes down to it, <laughs> when it comes down to it. <laughs> best stuff comes from that conversational long-windedness. No, that's true. Like, I can't dumb down and shorten things up because that's just not my style. Yeah. You know, if I wanted to be liked over Instagram, then maybe. Yeah. But I don't care about being liked. I just feel like people need to hear some of this stuff. I, I relate with that. Me neither. I've always been like, I don't care what other people think, really. I really don't. I know people say that. But I don't. That's why when people criticize me or lambast me with negative commentary on my blogs, I I leave that shit up there. Fine. And I might even talk to you and I might even go, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you are right. And they're like, hold on, wait, what? You're right? Do you, what? You're conceding? Yeah. Oh, well, okay then. You know, I'll take it. If you, if you criticize me and you make a point, I'm going to be like, okay, you were right. I mean, I have to do that almost on a daily basis with my husband. I'm used to it. Huh? <laughs> That's hilarious. It is. Okay. Now, now, now we're really going to wrap this up. Yeah. Because we are three hours and 42 minutes in. I'm totally going to get three podcasts <laughs> out of this. You just saved me work for, for a while here. Like, I'm like ahead of the game right now. If I even just waited until next week to release one. I've got three weeks to... Just fuck around and do nothing. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) A special thank you to Forever Sound for their musical clip, Sexy, which you hear within the podcast. For more information on how to connect with me, seek me out on social media, Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Twitter at DKingstrom, Instagram at DKingstrom. For more of my work, please check me out on patreon.com slash Danielle Kingstrom. You'll be able to see more of the content I create, excerpts from my upcoming manuscript and fleshed, making a monogamous relationship real. And you can also support my work. As always, thank you for listening. And until next time, take care.